I'm Evan. And I'm Hannah. We're working together to develop a sequel to our first role-playing game, Questlandia, and we're documenting that process in real time. Questlandia, the original game, recently went out of stock. We've decided that we want to do a print run of an updated and redesigned edition. To be clear, this won't be Questlandia 2, which is still in development. We talked about the decision in our last episode to revamp our first game. Today, we're going to talk about a deluxe edition option as a part of the Questlandia Kickstarter, a higher backer level that includes not just the game, but some bells and whistles like nice dice, fancy cards, and other supplemental materials. We know from experience how fun it can be to put together this kind of option, but it's a project that can easily run into trouble. Design Doc is entirely supported by the Turtle Bun Patreon. We share new episodes there, as well as sneak peeks or upcoming games and other creative projects. Thank you to our newest patron, Patrick. This episode goes out to you. You're the deluxe edition of a person. If anyone else wants to be addressed as a personified game design concept, you can support our work and become a patron at patreon.com slash turtlebun. So, when it comes to the decision of making a deluxe edition for Questlandia 1, the updated Questlandia 1, there's a lot of different considerations that go into that. Mm -hmm. And for almost every single other game we've kickstarted, after considering everything, we've decided, yeah, let's do it. We've had a a deluxe edition of some kind. And some of the reasons we came to that conclusion was, mm, well, like for starters, there's just the convenience of having a offering in the Kickstarter that gives you all the supplies you need to play the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our like, hope has often been like, oh yeah, this role-playing game is going to bring in people who have never played a role-playing game. Like, this is going to be the game that reaches across that barrier. Um, and, you know, we obviously have a ton of dice, but, you know, we have friends who want to play our games who have never played a role-playing game before, and, like, they don't have 40 D6s <laughs> that are needed to, like, right. play Questlandia or, you know, a, a deck of playing cards that's easy to grab. Or I mean, we did... To be fair, there's also, like, we designed these games to be played with pretty common materials. That's true. Like, the dice aren't too fancy. It's just normal playing cards. But it still makes a difference when you can just have it all in the box. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's one of the reasons. Convenience. There's also, like, um, like, it's another element of the experience of the game what materials you're playing it with. And if we include them and we choose them, then we get to control that part to some extent. Like we can make sure to pick supplies that match our ideal version, our ideal vision of what the game would look like and how it would play. Mm -hmm. Which sometimes means like, I don't know, like having a deck of cards that has a sort of theming that matches the game, um, having nice containers for things to be in so that like the way that you store them or take them out of storage like fits nicely into the feel of the game. Yeah, I mean, when we did our deluxe edition for Noirlandia, we even tried to like, you know, we made sure that the string that we sourced was like this sort of blood red embroidery yeah. thread. And the tacks were like silvery. We looked like really hard for thumbtacks that had like this sort of matte silver finish <laughs> um, mm -hmm. i don't know we cared about that the aesthetics of it yeah there's also a financial reason in that by having a higher level that people can back in it means people who both have the desire to support the game 
like are more excited about it and happen to have the income that makes it possible, they have an option. They have a way to give that much support. Mm -hmm. If it's not there, then, you know, they won't spend that much. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, we both know uh, really generous people, like generous friends or people who have come along for like every one of our Kickstarters since the beginning who have backed it, whatever the highest level is that we've offered. And sometimes it's not even caring about those rewards. It's just like an, an, a desire to show us that like, these are games that people are excited about and like that they have the financial means to show us that at, in a, in an extra way. Right. Um, which is really cool. It's so cool. So, so, super cool. <laughs> uh, I, uh, what, what could be cooler? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'll say another reason um, for offering a deluxe edition, and this is maybe a less good one, but in the past, I think we've also just felt like it's what you do in a Kickstarter that historically Kickstarter has kind of had this um, step ladder like this ladder effect where it's like okay you start with the pdf then you have the base physical game then you have the base physical game with the cards and the dice then you have the physical game with the cards and the dice and the poster then you know at this top level you're making custom characters or custom settings for people you're flying um, people out to vegas to have a party yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah we will throw you the bachelor party of the century <laughs> you will not even remember it because it's Norlandia and it will be a murder mystery. <laughs> oh, I forgot that we were really talking about doing a murder mystery as the highest level for Norlandia. Oh, that's still a really Man, cool idea. Um, I can't believe we were too cowardly to bring that to completion. <laughs> we will disappear you <laughs> or somebody, you know, for a reasonable cost. Um, yeah, I feel like that one, that it's just what you do, is one that maybe we're like fighting against a little bit more now. I don't even think that that's necessarily still the expectation. Like, I feel like that trend is changing in Kickstarter, but that might be yeah. another conversation for another day. But that's definitely a reason, feeling like it's something that we just should have because other people had it. Yeah, it it can give a certain uh, impression of... I don't know, like being competent at Kickstarter and thereby perhaps competent at making your game too. Mm -hmm. And I guess one more thing, like sort of related to what I was saying about controlling the experience is just satisfying, for me at least, my own interest in materials and like geeking out over really cool playing cards or cool boxes or beautiful objects or just all the different aspects that can go into the physicality of a product. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I feel like something that we've, I mean, we talked about this like way back in early design doc is sometimes I feel like the physicality of role-playing games is this really overlooked quality in them. Like, I feel like it's easy to think about a role-playing game as a book And you have pencils and a character sheet, and those are tools, like they are functional and not necessarily beautiful or thematically incorporated. Um, And I think it's been our goal from the beginning to be like, we already are setting out with this like tactile physical object. We really want every part of the table to be immersive and to feel like it matches the experience and that's even come down to the way that we design all of the character sheets for our game right game games games (laughs) i mean i do feel like part of the you know part of the modern era like the past 20 years where you know the internet is pretty ubiquitous and you can expect people to be able to download and read your stuff and play your games with no physical components at all, it sort of forces you to really consider what it means for something to be actually printed and actually an object. Mm. Like, you can't just say that's what you need in order to distribute the game anymore. Yeah. Now it has to have its own reasons. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, that's a, that's a really relevant tension that I feel like would be good to talk about in a future episode too. Like, um, Ooh, too too much for yeah. now. The temptation. <laughs> remember that. Remember Invisible Sun. That was the thing. Was that the name of it? I'm so far out of like. I ba- I barely play any games. Um, Invisible Sun. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Invisible Sun. Yeah, it was this Monty Cook game that came out a few years ago that um, had a really high like high entry cost. Um, it was this beautiful box and it was expensive and it has like a thousand cards or something and uh. it, it was like a hundred dollars. Um, and I can't remember, I think maybe the deal was there was also a PDF version, but you'd have to print everything out yourself. And it was like a hundred dollars. Um, and, oh. uh, it's a totally, totally beyond the scope of what we're talking about today, but it was, it it brings up some really interesting conversations about like what it means to have a version of something. What's what happens when your base edition is the deluxe edition and suddenly like who can access it and who can't. It's a future episode or maybe not. (laughs) We'll get into it a little. It's that interesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's super interesting. Disagree. All right, so <laughs> so we talked about some of our reasons for doing deluxe editions, like um, offering convenience, controlling the experience, offering right. that option to people who financially just can support that option, feeling like we had to do it because of some sort of sense of social pressure, and also liking nice things and caring about what those things look like. So mm-hmm. with that, Evan, do you feel like, in the past, because we have offered that level in every single Kickstarter, going all the way back to our first Kickstarter of Questlandia, do you uh-huh. feel like we've done a good job with those levels? Like, did we, where did we get it right? And where were we grasping? Um, okay, well, that's a complicated question. <laughs> yeah, and just to, <laughs> just to like, <laughs> to qualify this a little bit, the answer to this is the rest of our entire episode. So <laughs> this is what we're going right. to be talking about for the next 40 so minutes take it or away. something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and like, have a cup of tea. I think that the answer to how successful we've been is different for each of those reasons that we just went over of why we do it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to controlling the game experience, or another way to put it is sort of adding to the game experience, supplementing it. Well, I mean, I think of Norlandia, like we were just saying, where the red thread and silver pins, and it also had like these little case books that were like these little booklets where you could scrawl notes about the case as you went. Oh yeah, those were super, super cute. And we made these, you know, we had all these quick start settings that were mysteries full of clues and like a special environment and case that all were full of illustrations. And then we made a physical version of them where all of the clues were sort of pre-cut out into little slips that you could then pin to your board as you played. And they were put in these manila envelopes. And like, reaching into a manila envelope to draw out a random illustrated clue that then everybody could look at and then you pin to your board. That's like, that adds so much to the experience. Yeah. It's great. And I think of a lot of those as examples of times where like the physical way that we put these together and the form we put them in was way more than functional. Like it added to the experience. Yeah, I feel like Norlandia is a good example to start with, or or maybe this makes it a less good example to start with, um, because I think there was a lot that we did right with the choices we made of what like elevated that deluxe edition level. That's separate from like whether we priced it right, um, yeah, or put them together right. But those, like those casebook quick starts, um, were just those those like those maybe should have been part of the game, the game game. But, you know, right? that's when we do our reprint in second edition of Norlandia. Well, I mean, it really gets to that question of, like, 
where do you draw the line between what's considered a necessary component of the game and what's considered a more deluxe level? Yeah, I guess maybe that is a more interesting, <laughs> you know, I sort of, I sort of poo-pooed it in the beginning, but I guess it's sort of what we're talking about anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I really feel like with, with some of these deluxe edition levels, we've kind of been reaching into our butts to like find the <laughs> thing that, um, that, that justifies having that level. Like in Damn the Man, Save the Music, we had probably our most intentional deluxe edition of any game that we've made where i mean a huge part of that was like the box itself like it came in this big beautiful box that yeah had like an inset to divide all the components up you know in that case it also mattered so much like the box like we we hired an, another artist for the box who was just like i mean at, at this point like this person is like makes cards for Hallmark and stuff and does illustrations for the New York Times. Like they're just like an incredibly skilled artist um, uh -huh. named Bug Robbins. And like Bug made a, a box that was just amazing and people wanted it. Like people, people were really obsessed with the box design and that really helped to carry it too, was that the box just looked mm -hmm. like dope. And that said, when it came to the components of that deluxe edition, I could see those being a little bit more reaching than with Norlandia, where, you know, the red string and pinning up leads is sort of integral to the game experience. Like, the Damn the Man box included custom pencils that had a tagline printed on them, which I love, but I'm not so sure that that's like, <laughs> that feels more like, this is like a thank you present yeah for supporting the game then a this is going to improve the experience of playing damn the man yeah i mean you know it, what i mean it was really an example of i mean when we're talking about the deluxe edition is like adding this really like rich play quality versus being functional it, it was much more an example of functional and the best the coolest part about it was just that the box was really cool looking um, mm -hmm. otherwise it just had, I mean, it had dice, it had uh, playing cards, it had those pencils. We printed out some nice full color character sheets on cardstock and the, the book. It's just kind of interesting because, you know, the Norlandia deluxe edition might've had components that were more directly relevant to the play and like the experience of how it plays, but also the presentation of those components was like nowhere near as lovely as in Damn the Man. Because, I mean, like in Norlandia, it was just sort of all, it all just came it like lodged came in, a in a big pizza cardboard box. pizza <laughs> box. <laughs> I don't remember if it was like actually a pizza box, but I think it was basically just like a pizza, a pizza sized box. And we just, yeah. you know, threw some bubble wrap in there and made sure that all the components shipped properly and then yeah. sent them off. I mean, you know, you could argue that that's, that feels a little bit more like the way you'd get some rare piece of disregarded <laughs> evidence in a conspiracy case. But, like, honestly, it was just very utilitarian. <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of controlling the game experience through the deluxe edition, we've had mixed success, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And the editions that we've put together have had different levels of... Uh, even attempting that quality. In both cases, though, it definitely helped with the lowering the barrier to entry, like making it so you could just have everything you needed to get going from the moment you got your game. Yeah, which is nice. I mean, I as a person who often needs, like, I... I need everything in front of me for me to be able to get over the hump of doing pretty much anything. Um, like like uh -huh. having the setup be easy is, um, I don't know, is kind of crucial. And I don't even judge myself for it at this point. I feel like that's like actually a pretty normal way to be. But, you yeah. know, I even think about like somebody had gifted me some like little twinkle string lights a few months ago. Um, and they were battery operated and they also included like a, 
the batteries, like two packs right. of batteries. And they're now hanging up in my room. They still took like, took me three months to put them up in my room. But <laughs> uh, without those AA batteries, they would still be in a box. Right. Um, that was my deluxe edition (laughs) and I really appreciated it you know just like that little that little barrier to getting those lights up and to completing the thing that makes them work it was was substantial but I mean well I completely agree but also there's a very basic trade-off being made too because for plenty of people the extra expense is a barrier to entry. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> you <I> mean, know? <laughs> there's a reason I'm the, I'm the thank you level backer. backer. I'm the, <laughs> you know, right. kicking kick in $3 to appreciate the project and give a tweet about it. Um, and, and so it becomes really important to like think about how to lower that barrier as much as possible without a deluxe edition, without a you know, big container of materials, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess I touched on earlier in saying like we were aiming for just six-sided dice, for regular playing cards, for scraps of paper, for basically, hopefully, as easy a set of materials as possible to have on hand. Yeah. But when you have a deluxe edition that's like, this is everything you need to play, and it's got all the stuff, and it's a lower barrier to entry. I feel like that message undermines a little bit the basic level, you know, the just the book level, mm-hmm. and makes it seem like like it suggests that you're going to be getting a a compromise and maybe not a great one if you're just backing for the book. Yeah, that's a great point. Like getting seventy five percent of what you what you need to have the full play experience. Right. Um, which isn't something that we want to be communicating. Not at all, right? <laughs> um, uh, which I guess is the whole reason for doing this episode, is this just constant like tension that we've been talking about between all of these reasons to do a deluxe edition and then like where where along that spectrum we want our deluxe edition offerings to fall like are they purely functional are they functional and aesthetically pleasing or did they just like do they elevate the game to a whole new level like are are they like an art object uh and it's tricky for reasons we will discuss yeah in this episode (laughs) (laughs) it is happening as we speak (laughs) um you know i mean so this this it's what you do like, it's just what you do. I feel like this is, like, an increasingly uh, uninteresting bullet point because I do feel like now, in the past, like, maybe two years, I've seen more board games and role-playing games that don't have this, like, step up, step up, step up, all the way to $1,000, um, right. where we take care of your problem for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, like, I'm, I'm seeing more just, like, just a PDF or just, you know, a PDF and a physical book, uh, like fairly often in both role-playing games and board games. Um, sometimes yeah. in board games, just this the single board game level. So I'm like, I'm happy for that trend. And I also feel like in the places where we felt like we had to include that step up were some of the places where we made I don't want to say our biggest mistakes, but where we were like really grasping a little bit at what to offer, you know, in that damn the man in one of our damn the man deluxe edition levels, uh, like we offered a poster. And I think that the poster, even though it's a great poster, it it was also Uh made by bug. Like it's a really, it's a cool poster, but I think that it was just like, not something that people cared about um Mm -hmm. that much as an as an addition to the game Uh, like i think more people messaged us about loving their pencils than this poster made by a professional artist (laughs) and it wasn't because they didn't like the poster like it just maybe should have been something offered as like a backer kit add-on um yeah and backer kit has also changed this like previously we had we never used we had never used backer kit in any project before. So I think we felt like if there were components that maybe some people might want, they had to be like fit somehow into these existing levels. 
That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. now Kickstarter is incorporating its own version of like supporting add-ons and yeah. having a little bit more of a like pick and choose storefront feeling to just, backer rewards instead of just being linked to back for this much get this stuff yeah just just thought of that point and it's a good one me good job <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean it makes me feel a little less <laughs> it makes me feel a little less bad about some of our past decisions because i'm like oh like this wasn't necessarily us just scrambling it was us having things we genuinely wanted to include and maybe just like not having the tools at the time to include them. Right. Um, totally. I do want to mention in that, that what you do levels these. So there's two things that we've offered in the past and I like, I've almost forgotten about them, which I think in Noirlandia and Questlandia, we had this level where you were going to draw like a custom map. Maybe. Right. Yeah. And the weirdest part about those levels is that in both of them, some people backed them who weren't people that we were like, oh, yeah, that's a recognizable name of a friend or somebody that, you know, we talk to all the time on Twitter. We were like, wow, who are these awesome, generous people who want this custom piece of art? And then they never followed up to claim it ever. Right. Even after we said, like, hey, what's up? We're excited to work with you. And to this day, like, I feel like sometimes I wake up at night and I'm like, what are those people? What are they? What are they, they going to come for us <laughs> eventually? I mean, are they okay? Like, Did they just want to support the project? I mean, yeah, I hope they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope for they're sure. Okay. But um, I do think that a lot of that higher level backing is an expression of enthusiasm for what's being made and matching that enthusiasm to the financial circumstances that somebody's in where, you know, just how much they have to spend and what it means for them to spend a certain amount. Yeah. And, it's just a really nice gesture. <laughs> and when I think about the ways that we've had these levels before, I feel like, it has been really nice to have an option that people could select if their enthusiasm and financial reality aligned in such a way that they're like, oh, I'd spend $75 on this. This is such a good idea, and I want it to be made. I want it to happen. And then we could have something around that price where it could just, you know, it just fits. Yeah. And, you know, it does good for the Kickstarter as a whole to be able to uh, like have those levels that fit people who can spend more at a time. And it helps you reach your goal. It helps you surpass it in a way that's impressive and gives a good impression. And presumably, and then, so, so one part of the idea though is this idea that like we should be making sure that what we offer for $70 has more profit than somebody just buying the book. Yeah. But that's a place where we've run into a lot of trouble mm -hmm. because, well, there's just a lot of different constraints we're feeling. I mean, I think probably the simplest one is just the economy of scale. Like everybody gets a book who backs your project. And then beyond that, you want to make a whole bunch of extra books that you can sell after the project is over. So you're printing a lot of books, and that makes the books cheaper for each individual book, right? Mm -hmm. And that makes it more profitable. And so we can actually pay ourselves with that money. But with a deluxe edition, now you're not dealing with something that's every backer. It's a smaller subset of them. And so that means you're not going to be printing or producing or buying as many of each of the materials that makes up that deluxe edition. And those materials are, well, there's just way more of them, right? Like, yeah. it's not just a book anymore, a book in an envelope. It's 
cards and dice and bags and printouts and a box and maybe a box insert and pencils or whatever other goodies. And all of those suffer from being something that's only bought by a smaller proportion of of people. And so especially when you're doing something like printing a custom deck of playing cards, that's quite expensive if you're only making a hundred of them, which I think is about how many we've made when we've done custom playing cards. Yeah, I mean, and just to give a sense of that economy of scale, because I really do think that's like, at this point, the biggest issue for what makes it hard for us to just make the deluxe edition box of our dreams is that like, mm-hmm. um, you know, in in every Kickstarter, those the box, the box of cards costs more than the RPG book. You know, if you're ordering a print run of a thousand or 1500 of a book and your books, uh, you're able to get your book cost below $5 a piece, like those custom playing cards can be $6 a set if you're only ordering a hundred of them. (laughs) I think they were for, uh, for damn the man. Like, oh God, they're, it's, it's expensive. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, the, there's another part of it too, which is not just the raw material cost, but the labor cost or how much money you're making per hour of work, which is relevant. And once again, like with a deluxe edition, there's just a lot of complexity you're adding. I mean, it's a little hard to directly compare. Because the majority of the labor is definitely going to be in the book itself, making the rules, writing it, editing it, all of that. However, there's a really high density of work around a deluxe edition and doing all the research for all these different components and the design of them. And if they're customized, making them up from scratch and thinking of how you're going to store them and package them and present them. It's a lot for something that potentially won't get picked up by as many people. Yeah. And what that all adds up to is a deluxe edition, if you want it to really be like you're actually benefiting from people backing at that level, um, you start to have to charge numbers that I feel uncomfortable charging personally. Like, it feels too expensive if you're trying to use the same equation. And so you start really bending to be like, can we get away with with charging less? Like, can we make a little bit less money on these? Is it worth it? Does it pay for itself in different ways when you have something to offer somebody who's a huge fan? Or when you have, you know, that extra kind of, like how that support looks upon your project as a whole when your funding number is boosted up by people who are spending more. Do those justify, you start really looking and being like, can any of this be used to justify lowering this price Yeah. to a level that feels right for what's being offered? And that question of what, instinctually feels like the right price to ask for gets into a conversation about the norms of pricing, which let's, let's leave off on that for a moment. Let's get back to that later. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, that good, good episode um, on its own, (laughs) because that's definitely, I feel like we saw that really starkly and good dog, bad zombie is just, um, the meeting of when a popular project runs up against people who do and don't care about how it was produced. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It leads to some depression. <laughs> <laughs> it's the answer, but um, put a pin in that. So, so far, how does all that match your concept of what the draw is of a deluxe edition? And how well we've been doing at it. 
Yeah. I mean, for me, the draw of a deluxe edition, and when I say for me, like for me, if I, when I choose to back something at the deluxe level, um, which Uh isn't something that I've done with a role-playing game yet, but it is something I've done with with other things. Um, It's the draw of either getting into a hobby and having everything there where I can jump in immediately, um, Mm -hmm. which is really, (laughs) well, I'm going to come back to this because I have a thought about this too, Um, versus like the, the wow factor or the luxury experience. And sometimes those things could be, can be both. But I, it is interesting to think about when I choose one over the other, like um, as somebody who's become a quarantine crafter um, and has picked up new hobbies, sometimes you go to get into a hobby and you see the, the kit. It's like, okay, here's your yarn and here's your knitting needles, or here's the kit where you can get it all together. And sometimes those, those deluxe boxes feel kind of crappy. Right. Like, it feels like you're getting the cheapest and the worst of the things that you would want to buy to get into that hobby with care. Right. Um, which maybe isn't unrelated to what we're talking about here, because in our own in our own experience of trying to put together these deluxe editions, like, we find all the places where we have to make cost compromises and materials compromises and like we do care about where we source our materials from and we always try to get things like we try to get things in the united states wherever possible and sometimes we're like sacrificing our um i don't know our hopes for that level to the extent that it starts to not even feel worth it to offer it in the first place um that's a little bit of a like a sidetrack so yeah, having everything I need to jump into the the thing right there. Um, and yeah, then the the luxury experience and the wow factor, which I think be for me is the bigger one. Um, like I said, mm-hmm. I haven't it's not a draw that I've felt for RPGs. Um, but I'm like I'm a person who splurges on deluxe editions for makeup. Um I really like like when ColourPop comes out with its um, Animal Crossing sets or its Sailor Moon set or Hello Kitty. Like a few years ago, I bought like the highest level of the Hello Kitty ColourPop (laughs) limited edition makeup set. And it arrived in this beautiful box. Um, Each little item had its own slot for... Like, you know, it's like perfectly sized to the size of the lip gloss and the size of the eyeshadow. And the box wasn't even something you were supposed to keep. Like, I, I think it was a type of box that you were supposed to throw out eventually after you took your makeup out. But the the process of like it arriving and unboxing it and feeling so fancy and cute, I was like, mm, yeah, this is I got exactly what I wanted here. Right. You also, you have that set of, um, of tarot cards that were inspired by Over the Garden Wall. Yeah. And those were, those were a gift, a Kickstarter gift from somebody else because, oh, yeah. you know, like I said, um, <laughs> that is not like, it's not a way of backing Kickstarters that I've ever done. Um, but yeah, they're really beautiful. And I think that that's another example of like the, um, opting into the tactile experience of something. Right. Like they came, they're foil lined, they're beautifully printed. They come in this box that has sort of a magnetic latch. Oh yeah. Those are so nice. I have them right here. I'm going to look at them. Um, Yeah. This box, I feel like really gets it. What I would want out of like us offering deluxe edition things in the future, this magnetic clasp, the cards freaking have gold lining on the like there's the sides of the cards are gold yeah it's so it's pretty so nice their little book is beautiful i don't oh do wait did you hear that wait listen that's the that's the the magnetic clasp it's so nice <laughs> <laughs> it does say printed in china but there you go <laughs> well right right i mean we'll, we'll get to that in a second <laughs> but like i mean to be fair, with those tarot cards, like, those cards are it. Like, that's what you're buying. And as much as I want all of our components to feel that gorgeous, 
and well presented. In in this case, the book is it. The book is the real game. And the dice that we might send along are not. Yeah. And so that's this is just sort of another tension point where I constantly feel like I want all of these peripheral objects and components to be gorgeous and to be like celebrations of their physical reality. (laughs) (laughs) But then that, that is at odds with wanting to have these be sort of an accessibility ease of getting into the game affordable option. Yeah. So we've done deluxe editions with the original Questlandia. Then we did 14 Days. That's one where we kind of made the base game somewhat deluxe. Then we had Norlanda, which had the deluxe edition with lots of cool components stuffed into a cardboard shipping box. And then there was Damn the Man Save the Music, which had a beautiful presentation of a lot of components that were arguably more tangential to the game experience. Oh, yeah. And then uh, because I have to mention this, because it gives me a small feeling in my stomach, um, that level, that like the highest level had some custom art. Um, and this like booklet that... <laughs> Oh, I don't even want to talk about it. Anyway, there's still some things that people are waiting on there. It has taken us literally years to finish this booklet for a lot of reasons. We were like, we're going to make a magazine that's like a 90s billboard style magazine. And uh, it's going to have stretch goal authors. And we have literally been working on it for years. (sighs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, that also just gets into our like frequent recurring conversation about why to offer stretch goals or why not. But um, if you're listening mm-hmm. and you are one of the people <laughs> waiting on that, um, the custom art is done and it's literally been sitting like very well preserved in my closet for a few years because um, it takes some coordination to get it to the people who are waiting for it. So please don't feel bad about sending me an email. <laughs> asking mm-hmm. about it and i'm sorry that um that you have to be the person to ask about it instead of just getting the thing <laughs> that you were excited about three years ago and probably are less excited about now um okay it's so <laughs> it's gonna be okay i'm gonna get it out <laughs> oh gosh it's so yeah the idea of just like this tension of wanting to offer like better and better things for a Kickstarter to the point that like you kind of undo the work you undo the work and the enthusiasm and the good faith by sometimes offering these additions when you can't quite pull it off the way that it played out in your head. (laughs) And we're getting better at that, Um, but it doesn't change that there are people who backed this project in 2017 that are still waiting on their custom art. And I feel like balls about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so easy while you're trying to navigate all the different pressures that go into this kind of decision. It's so easy to walk yourself into making promises or charging prices that compromise your ability to pay yourself or involve kinds of work that you don't really want to do that like aren't the reason that you're making this thing or doing this work at all which is definitely what happened with good dog bad zombie and it's you know it's not quite in a deluxe edition with good bad with good dog bad zombie it's a an extra add-on but that add-on involved a kind of work that's like not game design and so it involved doing a lot of irrelevant less desirable labor and making less games over yeah. the course of years <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a great point. And I feel like it's one that we haven't mentioned yet with these deluxe editions, which is like, if you're going to offer anything that is not just the game, um, like you have to be sure that that's, that is a type of work that you want to put in. Um, right. Even if it's just the work of like, you know, having a packing party with your friends where you custom put together the box inserts because it's not financially feasible to get them printed at a a print shop in China um, mm -hmm. because you only have a hundred of these sets to put together. Like, do you want to spend 40 hours with your friends or by yourself putting together, like constructing boxes? Is that part of why you became a game designer? Right. Um, sometimes the Which, answer is yes. Like sometimes it's fun. I've actually really enjoyed packing envelopes. Yeah. It turns out that's like a really enjoyable sort of almost meditative <laughs> kind of work for me. But you did not enjoy like finding pixels where there weren't any on people's um, dog photos. Yeah, you know, I mean, from a photo I can, album from 1982. I, it, that's a case where it's like, okay, that was work that was actually not bad and even kind of rewarding to get good at. But there was way more of it than I wanted. Yeah. Um, the ratio of how much effort I spent on editing dog photos versus designing a dog game, it got way out of whack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that gets into another consideration, which is that at this point, we've made a bunch of deluxe editions. We've done a lot of sourcing materials and costing them out and packaging them and like making shippable boxes full of these components and figuring out storage and like comparing and contrasting different quotes for prices. A lot of these sort of tangential, tangential to game design skill sets. And some of them we've done even much more than we wanted to as the result of, you know, not accurately guessing how mm -hmm. much time and effort and skill would be required to fulfill some of the promises we've made. And that leads to a situation where on one hand, you feel like, okay, never going to make that mistake again. No more dealing with warehousing or whatever. And on the other hand, thinking, I've gotten pretty good at warehousing now. <laughs> I, I, I'm better equipped to make these kinds of decisions than ever before. And so in a way, I, I want to launch into making a deluxe edition because I feel like I have all of this experience and uh, knowledge that's going to be helpful in doing it well. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes me think of like being a really little kid and going on my first like deluxe water slide and screaming the whole way down. Um, like my dad was holding <laughs> me while we went down together and just screaming the whole way down and just sobbing um, in like mortal terror. And then, you know, being jettisoned out <laughs> into the pool at the end and being like, <gasps> <gasps> and then, you know, my dad was like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, again. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it feels oh, like. Oh, man. That has been our Kickstarter experience, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I mean, that is really, that's really one of the tensions of this process is, like, you fuck it up, and because you fucked it up, you learn something, and you're like, okay, I fucked it up, so we shouldn't, <laughs> let me use our fuck quota for this episode. Um, you're like, I... <laughs> I messed it up, so we, we shouldn't do that again. We learned our lessons, but because we learned our lessons, we should do it again. Right. <laughs> so we have a final, like, um, some final things to end on. Do you want to talk, like, for a minute about the, the markets? I so do. Cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're big old communists. I mean, the... 
the thing about a deluxe edition where you're offering a whole bunch of items, a whole bunch of different materials that all add to the play experience, the more you do that, the more it starts to feel like a board game, basically. The more it starts to feel like it exists in that sphere of board game Kickstarters and board game stores and like what you get in a typical board game. And in a typical board game Kickstarter, you're going to see a massive display of pieces and things you get in the box. And it's like, there's a lot of almost giddiness about how much stuff you can include and how high quality those materials are. And if you're getting figurines of characters or custom-made stuff, if things are made with metal, if there's magnets, if there's 300 of anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and a lot of this, I don't, I don't want to disparage it. Like, this is, this is very relevant to what I was saying about wanting to celebrate the materiality of the components of a game. And in a world where, like, now video gaming is so absolutely massive, a big part of the appeal of a board game is its physical reality as things you can hold. However, it gets really tense and really difficult to start comparing what we can do in a deluxe edition with what a even middling board game can offer on its own Kickstarter. <sighs> yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that. A big one is uh, working with like Chinese production companies. And that can, I mean, there's really two big ones. There's working with massive board game manufacturing companies that exist in areas where labor is not compensated well. And there's economies of scale, once again. And economies of scale aren't just about how much you think you can sell of the thing. It's not just about how many backers you get. It's also about how much money you have in your bank account before you start the project. Because you can start to take risks much more readily if you have a, a enough wealth to sort of play the odds and be like, we'll print 10,000 copies of this game. We don't know how many we'll sell. But by printing 10,000 copies of it, the prices of each one of those copies is going to go down so low that even if we only sold 1,000 of them, even if we only sold 500 of them, we might be coming out even. Yeah. But if you're just going to make a hundred copies, which is 1% of that total, the price per copy is so much higher that you could sell out of all hundred copies and barely make a profit. So being able to have huge runs of products saves you massively. And then, yeah, there's just, there are more now than ever extremely cheap ways to get really shockingly high-quality components in impressive quantities from Chinese board game companies. So I'm not trying to, like, feel like that means they're bad people who do this, like, yeah, no, it's I fine. Mean, it's reasonable. <laughs> it's really like it's it's something that I've tried to talk about before, and I feel like I've always struggled to express it well. Like, like whenever we talk about this, we're not disparaging uh, like anybody who produces games this way because it's like this is a problem that is so much bigger than 
anybody making these games or having a successful Kickstarter. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's at the level of production and it's at the level of consumption too, because the more that people, I mean, part of capitalism is that it goes to great lengths to hide the parts that make it work. And the parts that make it work are often really fucking sinister. And if you have an amazing board game with hundreds of pieces that is $45, or let's say it's a fancy one, it's $65. You're like, I paid $65 of my hard-earned money for this. Um, and it was printed, you know, there were 10,000 or more copies that were printed in China, getting those unit costs down so low. I mean, it, it creates an expectation for the person buying it and playing the game with their friends that like, this is what $65 looks like. Right. Um, and $65 spent on a game should look like that across every game. And, you know, when we were talking, after we made Good Dog, Bad Zombie, we were talking to a company that was really excited about the game and the mechanics. And they told us that this was a game that was worth being in Barnes and Noble, but our production of it wasn't. And I think at that point, like, I think there's a world in which we would have been willing to make the next run of that game, not handmade by a co-op because like making that run of the next game in China could have changed our lives. <laughs> like to have of a course. game in Barnes yeah. and Noble, like that could have, you know, supported Brian and his son. Um, right. And yet by doing that, robbed a worker-owned co-op in California of their livelihoods. Uh, like, wouldn't it be awesome to live in the world where we could scale up the production of making thousands of copies in that game by a worker-owned co-op? Like it, it's... Yeah. It just does everybody a disservice to not see every part of this process. And yet that's not like a burden or an expectation I want to put on somebody who like just wants to buy a game from their friends. The same as like, uh, it's not always a burden or expectation that I consider when I'm buying my Hello Kitty $75 glossy right. lip gloss set right. from ColourPop. There's, you know, a big part of what I see as a solution uh solution is a really strong word <laughs> let's say like just sort of a an approach to lessen the damage that this kind of competition does to the options of somebody making a game and the pressure it puts on them to uh produce things as cheaply as possible one approach to help lessen that is a kind of flexibility in consumers of mm, of kind of like a non-comparison or an appreciation of the different elements that go into a different kind of production. Like, or to put it more simply, just sort of an awareness of what that $65 means in relation to that board game that has many copies printed somewhere very cheaply. Yeah. As opposed to a deluxe edition of an RPG, which might only have relatively a handful of copies being produced by people who are trying to produce it, you know, who aren't looking for the cheapest place to produce it. Or not just cheapest, but also absolute highest quality components. But our making those compromises to try to make something that's still special and still fits with their game, but also fits with the level of funds they have at their disposal and the kind of care and attention they want to put into the circumstances of production for what they're making. And then you can start to think like, okay, my $65 means one thing here and a different thing here. And that can be okay. It doesn't have to be a direct comparison of, well, I got, you know, three pounds of extra components in my $65 <laughs> in this other game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, finding more ways to lean into this, um, I don't know, this 
this is this is oh god this sounds like the tooliest thing but like the aesthetic of the incomparable um which is mm-hmm. to say like this bespoke handmade craft thing um uh-huh. like i i feel like that's really going to be a way forward for us is you know as i like spend a lot of time looking at these independent crafters on instagram making ceramics and making candles and making um cool things out of clay or hand bound books. Like there, there really seems to be like a respect that exists in those spaces for the craft. And, uh, I feel like it's sort of an untapped way of making that's like, it's, it's a little unexplored in role-playing games. Like, I think it's maybe something that like, uh, like heart of the deer unicorn is doing with like fall of magic and stuff. But I don't, Uh I don't know if I see it a lot of other places and that may be our ticket out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's, I guess, a pain point in this kind of consideration is just that those comparisons, for me, are internalized. I'm not just saying these are complaints that I get from backers. This is something I wrestle with in my own mind, of feeling like, oh, I could never ask for that much money for this sparse and offering compared to what what's on offer in other kickstarters and that's a real struggle to figure out like how to navigate finding ways to offer more and charge more that aren't martyring ourselves yeah (laughs) for the sake of appearing competitive So for someone who has entered this podcast wondering whether or not they should offer a deluxe edition, um, I don't know. I hope that we at least brought out some of the considerations that go into making that decision, even if that doesn't add up to a tidy yes or no, because it's probably obvious that it hasn't added up to a tidy yes or no for us. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Let us. I mean, I'd be interested in knowing people's thoughts and also interested in hearing from people who have backed at higher higher levels of things and it it doesn't have to just be for role playing games like if you're like me and you like that tactile experience of getting the the fancy unboxing thing in the mail like i'm just curious what that draw is for people because i think that'll help us mm-hmm. make this decision of what this backer level in questlandia is going to look like if you have any thoughts on that We'd sincerely love to read them. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at designdocpod and tweet to us there. Or you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a company that has its own Twitter account, which is at Turtle and Bun. Let's um less of a company and more of a collaboration of it's it's just aesthetic. a circumstance, man. It's sort of a circumstance. It's a happening. <laughs> so uh so, <laughs> speaking of deluxe editions, um this week on the Turtle Bun website, which is just turtlebun.com, uh we have a special thing. We a few years ago when we kickstarted Norlandia, we made this deluxe edition and part of it were these bundles of quick start mysteries. They came with like nine quick start mysteries and we have a few like singles of those left that's like a full playable quick start mystery and each one was made by a different game designer. Um, mm-hmm. We have just a few more copies of them left. I think there's like less than 10 copies now, but fewer, fewer than 10 copies There are not that many left. Um, But if you, until they're out, if you order a Noirlandia on our website, we're shipping them all out with one of the quick starts for free. Turtlebun.com. Turtlebun.com. Get your mystery. Get your mystery on. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, also, uh, if you like this podcast, you could consider leaving us an iTunes review. We always forget to say it, but every time we mention it, people say nice things, which feels great. And it also helps people find the podcast, which is hugely helpful. The Design Doc intro outro theme is written by our friend, musician Pat King.
Thanks, Pat. This episode and the one before it have been edited by Jeff Stormer, our friend and colleague and the person we want to be when we grow up. You can check out more of Jeff's work <laughs> at the Party of One podcast. That's Jeff's podcast or All My Fantasy Children. That's Jeff's other podcast. Jeff may even have other other podcasts that uh, we don't know about. Um, Design Doc is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. If you like Design Doc, One Shot hosts other great shows like A Horror Borealis. It's 1996. Cell phones are a fantasy. Jinko jeans are in style and there are monsters in the American wilds. Three women from wildly different walks of life must come together in the face of monstrous beasts, unsavory politicians, and their own dangerous secrets in order to unite their community and discover the truth about a magic that just might save them all. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks, heroes. 